uh, Psalm 68. And, uh, you know, many people have found uh, encouragement in the Psalms. They, they turn to the Psalms uh, in times of adversity and, and trouble and struggle, and uh, they have found uh, encouragement in reading the Psalms and, and the assurance that, you know, God is there for them. Uh, as I mentioned last week, sometimes when we just feel like we're being beaten down by those who oppose us, there's, there are Psalms that address the enemies of God's people. Uh, sometimes when we uh, just feel like jumping for joy, uh, there are Psalms that fit that mood. Uh, but there are also those psalms that uh, bring great comfort in all times of life that may not necessarily be the, the happiest moments, but, but they are times that assure us that God is present. There are all kinds of ideas on when Psalm 68 was written. I'm not even going to begin to bore you with the background of that. Um, uh, one fellow compiled uh, a listing of 400 different interpretations of when the psalm uh, was written, and uh, my goodness. Uh, but for the most part, uh, those are by people who have the trouble accepting the scriptures at face value. Um, still, there's a little bit of a mystery here, but I'm going to go with the mainstream because it makes the most sense to me. And the idea is that Psalm 68 was written by David on the occasion when he went to the house of Obed-Edom and brought the ark into Jerusalem uh, so that it could come to a, a home within the tabernacle that he had prepared for the ark. So that's the setting of the story. And I don't know if you're aware of the background of this. I, I realize as I've been reading the Psalms, a good interpretation of the Psalms requires a pretty thorough knowledge of Scripture. Uh, you're going to miss a lot if you don't know all that came before it. And so it's, it's important. Uh, you can't go back and read all the Old Testament for the Psalms, probably, in the time that we've allotted. But I want to go back and remind you of this particular story. It happens to be found... In 2 Samuel chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to tell you the story, but you can write that down so you can read it in some detail. Uh, David wanted to uh, prepare a tabernacle, a tent for the, the meeting place of the Lord, and he wanted uh, to go uh, and get the ark, which had been kind of resting uh, in the household of Abinadab and bring the ark back to Jerusalem to the tabernacle. And the first half of the story is rather uh, sad and, and, and uh, shaking because Abinadab had two sons, and uh, Ahio and Uzzah, and they were uh, principal in preparing the ark and getting it ready to be brought back to Jerusalem. And David had had a special cart made, an, an ox cart, that was made to transport the ark. And when they got uh, on the way, on the journey, they came to a threshing floor, and one of the 
uh, oxen apparently lost its footing. And in doing so, the cart became unstable. It looked like the ark was going to fall off. And Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, reached out to, to grab the ark and keep it from falling. The scripture says the anger of the Lord burned against him for his irreverence. And he died right on the spot for touching the ark. And David was mortified. He just could not understand why God would cause this man's death for trying to be helpful. And, and David was so frustrated and so upset by it uh, and so angry with God, quite honestly, uh, if you don't have to wonder what David's feeling. When you read the Psalms, he's pretty, he's pretty open about his feelings. And he was really angry with God, and so he ordered that the ark simply be carried uh, over to the side, and the household of uh, Obed-Edom received the ark. And David did not bring it to Jerusalem. He said, I, I cannot risk... <laughs> touching this thing anymore. I can't risk bringing it to Jerusalem. I'm just going to send it over to Obed-Edom's house and it can just sit there as far as I'm concerned. And uh, he went back to Jerusalem very disappointed and disillusioned. Well, about three months later, (laughs) news came to David that the household of Obed-Edom was being greatly blessed. And all of his uh, work was being blessed And the whole family was being blessed. And David starts to think to himself, he's got the ark, and God's blessings are just pouring out on him and on his family and and, uh, on all of his efforts and his work. And and he's just really becoming great because of the presence of the ark. And by this time, David's frustration has cooled down a little bit, and he begins to think it through, and he says, well, we really do need to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It it belongs in the place of worship. And so, uh, he prepares again to go and get the ark from the household of Obed-Edom and bring it to Jerusalem. And it's going to be a time of great celebration. You know, the Scripture doesn't say so, but um, I'm wondering if David didn't figure out what had been wrong. Uh, I, I think it's implied when it says, and so that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Do you know what the problem was? David started initially to transport the ark on an ox cart which was susceptible to being spilled or whatever, and oxen are not nearly so careful where they put their feet as people are. God had given very clear instructions on how to carry the ark. It had rings in the four corners of the bottom through which long poles could be placed, and four priests were to put the ark on their shoulders, each one on a corner, uh, a little distance away, and they were to carry the ark 
and they could pay attention to where they put their feet, and they could keep the load balanced, and the ark would not suffer that kind of problem. And one of the lessons that we can take away from here, this is not in this morning's sermon, this is a freebie. One of the, one of the lessons that we can take away from here is doing God's work our way is not honoring to God. In the New Testament, he says something very similar when he says God hates even the garment spotted by the flesh. When we seek to do God's work our way, God's work in our strength, God's work with our ideas, we are destined ultimately to failure. God wants His work done His way. And there are reasons for it. And in the case of the ark, there was a reason. You know, and I have no doubt that Uzzah ended up in the presence of God. I don't think God, you know, he ended up in hell or anything. I think he ended up in the presence of God. And uh, he just had an early home going. But it cost him his earthly life because of David's wrong methodology. And that's another freebie, by the way. When you're in leadership and you decide to do things your way, often people pay the price other than you. It's terribly important that we follow the directions of God and do things His way because other people suffer when those of us in leadership go our own way. So, the implication is the bearers of the ark. He's doing it the right way. Every time they go six paces, David sacrifices an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And he was wearing a linen ephod. Now, there's some misleading in some translations of the Bible that he was dancing without any clothes on. That, that's ridiculous. And furthermore, it would not have been very honoring for anything. So, that is not what was happening. But Michael, his wife, Saul's daughter, looked through the window as he approached through Jerusalem, and she was disgusted with David. Because he was dancing before God and jumping and praising God and in a linen ephod, just, just like a, a white covering, a robe. And it was a common slave's dress. And David had shed his royal, pre, uh, his royal kingly garments and dressed like a servant, and danced before the Lord with all of his might as the ark approached Jerusalem. Why do you suppose he did that? Because David had been humbled. And he recognized that he did not deserve to be a king in God's presence. God is the only king. David dressed like a servant and he took away the trappings of his, of his kingly 
office so that he could humble himself before God and before the people. And he, he gave blessing to all the people in, in terms of gifts of food. And it was a great day of celebration. And this is perhaps the psalm, most likely the psalm, that David wrote as he prepared for this great celebration of bringing the ark into the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And I, I imagine that David, as he wrote this, uh, had these lyrics welling up within him. He had a melody that was overwhelming him. I think he imagined what it would be like on that festive occasion. Uh, I think he was already dancing in his heart. And when he actually got in front of the ark and with the people, and the ark is coming home, David couldn't contain himself. He's singing this psalm that he wrote, and he's dancing with, with glee and exuberance and joyfulness, and leading the procession, so happy that the ark of the covenant is coming back to the place in Jerusalem. It's a marvelous story. And as David writes the psalm, he thinks about God's character and God's nature. And there are great words of encouragement in it. Let's look at Psalm 68 and uh, we'll begin in verse 1. Probably not going to read every verse this morning, but we'll look at several of them. He begins by saying, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him as smoke is driven away, so drive them away as wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. In other words, God is going to destroy his enemies. He will win the victory. He will win the battle. But for the righteous, they are exhorted. Let them be glad. Let them exult before, the God, before God. Let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before Him. This is what David was doing. He was modeling for all of Israel the joy that should be theirs because God was their God. And He was represented as the covenant-keeping God, which was the image of the ark. That was the symbol of God's covenant with Israel. And the ark, don't forget, contained two things. The ark had the law within it, but the mercy seat over it. And God's holiness was held back by His mercy as He offered to Israel for all those faithful followers a way that they could relate to Him, come to Him, and worship Him because the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and David was just so, ex so excited and so thrilled that the ark is coming. And I, these two verses are verses of great encouragement. Verses 5 and 6. For God is a father of the fatherless 
and a, and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. My mom had a lot of uh, issues and struggles in her life. She had a lot of emotional challenges. But she also had a faith that ran deep. She grew up in the church. She grew up around the piano. Our whole family on her side grew up singing gospel music. Uh, we would get together on weekends and on holidays and gather around the piano in, in uh, Graham's, my grandmother's living room. And uh, my mother and my uncle Jimmy would take turns playing. He was a well-known gospel pianist. And here would be the family singing around the piano gospel songs and singing parts. And we could do that for hours. That was uh, a great time that we had together uh, as a family. And so when my dad died, my, my mom's husband, obviously, uh, when my dad died, I was 15 my brother was 11, and um, mom was uh, probably, let's see, about 43, and um, 46, somewhere in there. And all of a sudden, she found herself with two teenage boys to raise, no husband having to manage and, and live alone and, and make life work for herself. And she found herself often praying at night uh, for God's uh, protection and for God's wisdom and for God's direction. And God spoke to her, I will be a father to the fatherless. I'll take care of these boys. And he said... I will set a guard about the borders of the widows. And I will care for you and keep you safe. And my mother testified that she never feared from that day forward. Uh, living alone, living with us, and then ultimately living alone, she never was afraid. Because God had promised to protect her boundaries. This is precisely what he says. He is the father of the fatherless. And when it says he is a judge for the widows, it means that he will judge them fairly. He will protect them. He will be that not unjust judge, but just judge who defends their cause. And that he will be a source of help and victory uh, for widows that's what God is in the days of His holy habitation. And so, if you find yourself in those places, there are the promises of God. What great promises. What peace He affords. And then, in verse 6, God makes a home for the lonely. Are you lonely today? Do you feel lonely? Do you know what it's like to be lonely in a crowd? To, to feel like you're around all these people, but you feel so alone. Maybe you really are alone. Maybe there, uh, there is no family beyond yourself. Maybe you find yourself alone. God says He will make a home for the lonely. 
And aren't you glad this morning that God has made the church for those who are lonely? We have a huge family. We have a big family. We have people that love us and care for us and pray for us and invite us to dinner and and look out for us because we have this big family. The family of God that God has made for us that no one would be lonely. He leads the prisoners into prosperity. Uh, He's talking about those that are in bondage. Are you struggling this morning with things that hold you down that that um, seem to be habitual pressure upon you uh, that keep you in bondage and keep you from becoming the person you want to be? God will lead the prisoners out to prosperity. He will give you deliverance. You turn to the Lord and He will set you free. Whatever your struggles are, He will make you free. And so, these are words of great comfort and great encouragement that our God is a gracious God who promises us so many things. In the middle of the psalm, and I haven't outlined this, by the way, in the conventional sense, I've outlined it more as a, with a devotional theme. There are really a number of parts to the psalm, but I've just broken it down into three. That the great victory of God and the blessing upon His chosen land. Beginning in verse 7. David says, O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, pause everyone and think of that. Selah. When you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, but the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. The Mount of Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel, but you brought abundant rain. Uh, the, the rain here is a poetic uh, symbol for refreshment. And what did God do for His people in, in the wilderness? He provided manna. And He provided uh, sweetness to the waters. And He provided water that followed them like a stream in the desert. God cared for His people Israel. And, and this first section of this middle part, David has a poet's remembrance as he rehearses in his mind the great exodus and deliverance that God brought for His people from the land of Egypt. And he ultimately brought them to victory as he promised them the land of Canaan, to be their home. And he drove out the, the kings before him and the leaders of the cities. And God made a way for them in the land of Canaan. And for those who went to battle, he gave victory. And for those who stayed back and, and uh, minded the, the home front, so to speak, he brought back the spoils of great victory so that they could enjoy the blessings of the land of Canaan. Notice in verses 13 through 17, it says, When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you're like the wings of a dove covered with silver and pinions glistening with gold. 
I hope you have a good imagination. I hope when you read these poetic pictures that David paints with words, that you can see the, the glory and the beauty of God, gentle as a dove. The sweet, sweet Spirit of God. But as you think of a dove, uh, in the, the gentleness and tenderness of dove-like qualities, but wings covered with silver, and pinions glistening with gold. Can you see a dove with silver wings and gold pinions? And just imagine this beautiful, gentle dove settling down upon the people and covering them and giving a hiding place and shade and refuge and rest that this is the kind of God He is. Yes, He makes the mountains quake. Yes, the earth trembles at His passing. Yes, He is the great God of glory, but He is the God of gentle peace and provision and refuge and tranquility. Wow. Verse 16, Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for His abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. God's earthly place of dwelling is in the holy city of Jerusalem. And one day, He will come back to that place. One day, He will return. And this causes David to turn his gaze inward and outward. Not to what he can see in the moment with his eyes, but to what he understands in the Spirit will come in the future. You may recall that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, uh, Who is he that um, ascended on high, but the one who descended down to the earth and uh, gave gifts to men? And it talks about his blessing to the church. But it's clearly, as Paul quotes this verse 18 in Ephesians 4, it is clearly a picture of, of the resurrected glory of Jesus Christ and of His coming and of His blessing and of His ascension and His coming again. You have ascended on high. You led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. Now, the Hebrew is a little bit difficult there and Paul kind of gives us a divine interpretation because the Hebrew literally says you take gifts among men. But the sense that Paul interprets that in Ephesians 4 is that he takes his gifts among you. He brings them to you. He, he gives them to you. And he blesses you with his gifts. Even 
among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. In other words, as He comes back to this earth to reign, it is not only those who love Him that will bow the knee to Him, but even those who have been rebellious will bow the knee to Him. When our Lord Jesus sets up His Millennial Kingdom, He will reign and rule throughout the earth and there will be peace all over the earth. And all the nations will be in obedience to Him. Even those that rebelled will be forced to recognize His Lordship and His Kingship. And they will come and bow before Him. Blessed is the Lord who daily bears our burdens. Listen to these promises for God's people. He bears our burdens. Do you have burdens this morning? Do you have things that are weighing you down? Isn't that what a burden is? It's something that is a drag on your life. It makes you feel like you're going to faint under the load. It weighs you down. And yet, the Lord, our God, bears our burdens. What does Jesus say? Come to Me, all you that are weary and have heavy loads. Take My yoke upon you. Come alongside Me and step into My yoke you will find that my burdens are easy and my yoke is light. And you'll find rest for your souls. Do you worry? Does anxiety keep you up at night? Are you worried about the future? Do you not know how things will turn out? Do they cause you uh, tension and sadness? Jesus says, come next to me. Take my yoke. I know the future. I hold you in my hand. I protect you. I'll go with you. You don't need to be afraid. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He is our salvation. The salvation is a word that we have somewhat isolated to, you know, we say, are you saved? And what we mean is, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Are you going to heaven? Um, even if it works that way. <laughs> it it kind of does work that way, but there's got to be a lot more behind it than just those words. But salvation means wholeness. It means restoration. It means recovery. It brings to us uh, mind and body and spirit and soul. It, it restores us. Salvation is a big process that our Lord offers us. Yes, it means eternal life. Yes. 
Where else could we go if we are forgiven, cleansed, and followers of Jesus Christ? Where else could we go but to His presence? That's almost like a given. But besides our destiny, there's our immediacy, our moment-by-moment need for restoration, for healing, for recovery. And salvation encompasses all of that. He is our salvation. He restores us. He delivers us from bondage and from death. Who is it that promises to take our bodies out of the grave? Who is it that promises to take us immediately in our spirit into His presence in heaven and one day to call forth that body in resurrection and put us all back together? Spirit, soul, and body forever redeemed of the Lord, resurrected in His person. Isn't that amazing? That's His promise. So we have all of these assurances Verses 21 to 24 dwell on how God will judge his enemies, even those who are rebellious to his rule. And then, as we come back to verse 24, David comes back to the present. Your enemies have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God the King into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, even the Lord, you who are of the fountain of Israel. There's Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them. There are the princes of Judah. There are the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Because the kingdom was still united in the days of David, and all of the tribes were represented in this great procession as they were ushered into the sanctuary, into the holy place, or the, or the, the court of the tabernacle. Can you see it? David in his mind has reviewed the history of the Exodus. He has marveled at the greatness of his God. He has seen with prophetic vision the coming of Messiah. And now he approaches the tabernacle. And he comes back to the present. And I'll just bet you that he was dancing and leaping and praising God and waving his arms and, and giving glory to God. And all of this excitement. It's no wonder that God judged Michael and left her barren for the rest of her days. Because she looked out the window and she said, What a fool you're making of yourself, David. You're the king. How dare you act that way? That was the, those were the thoughts of her heart. But David was lost in the glory and the wonder of such a great God. And there's so much to be had in the Psalms. Isn't it wonderful to read through them and to see all that He has for us? 
There are so many other things in here. If we had time, my goodness, we could spend weeks on this. But in verse 35, he comes to the benediction and the prologue, or the uh, afterward. Oh God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. <laughs> A little modern English there. <laughs> You're awesome, God. The God of Israel gives himself strength and power to the people. Blessed be our God. Isn't that great? Almost anything you can imagine this morning that you need, this psalm promises the provision. Are you lonely? Are you needy? Are you burdened? Are you in bondage? Do you have struggles? Are you fearful? All of these things, our great God will meet. Praise His holy name.